Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt before we get into today's podcast. Tax time is coming, Jake. It is upon us. What are we doing for people? Well, we've got some amazing offers with our partners, BTL Aesthetics. Um, they are doing end of year financial deals. So end of year in Australia for the tax year is 30th of June. And BTL are already doing some amazing offers on their portfolio of equipment. So anything from 10 to 40% off their devices, depending on which one you want. And if you tell them that you're a listener of Inside Aesthetics, then you get an extra 10% on top of that. So serious savings. That's cash in your pocket. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you'd like to take advantage of this offer, you can send an email to either Jake or myself or both. Um, Jake's email address is jake at insideaesthetics.com and mine is david at insideaesthetics.com. So get in touch. Let us know that you'd like more information or you'd like to buy 100 pieces of this equipment and we'll put you in touch with Gareth Pepper, who is the sales manager here in Australia. So just to remind you, the company BTL make a number of different pieces of equipment. I think Jake's had most of the treatments. I'd ha- I've had some of them. What's the technology all about, Jake? Well, they've got their M-Seller device, which is working particularly on the pelvic floor. It's a really interesting novel device, particularly for female patients, of course, but also men. Uh, they've got their M-Sculpt device, the original M-Sculpt that works on the abdominal wall and musculature. Then they've got their upgrade to that, which is M-Sculpt Neo, which also incorporates RF technology for um, a fat melting component as well as the muscle building. And then their latest um, uh, device, which we covered in episode 192, is M-Face which is their sort of revolutionary new technology that helps on lifting the face, but also working on the uh, texture of the skin. So lots to explore, guys. Um, Speak to your accountants about this because it's particularly timely if you want to get a business asset write-off. I won't go into the details of that, but it will save you tax as well. And um, yeah, yeah, get in touch with Gareth and he can give you all the details. And just to remind you guys, we, we live in a world where there's a, a sea of devices that promise you the world and some of them do what they say they're going to do. A lot of them don't, but um, BTL are the real deal. Both Jake and I have had their treatments before. Um, we wouldn't be recommending something that we haven't tried ourselves and seen results from. So send us an email, take advantage of the offer and enjoy the podcast. So David, Wednesday, we're back in the studio. Uh, another day, another dollar. Wacky Wednesday. It's like Groundhog Day. It just feels the same every time. We, every episode we do is the same. It's Wednesday. Well, that's our day. That's, yeah. that's the day where we spend some time together. Luckily. Yeah. Well, unluckily. Who knows? Yeah. What have you been up to this week? Uh, lots of consulting. 
Um, yeah, lots of people reaching out at the moment for for assistance with their businesses. So that's been keeping me pretty busy. It's great because uh, I'm learning all the time as well and, and being challenged by certain scenarios. Um, I gave a, a talk for Mertz on Saturday at their nurse academy um, in here in Sydney, which was great. So really? it's been, yeah, it's been pretty busy and just dodging the rain clouds. <laughs> Were there any listeners in the crowd? Yeah, heaps. I mean, it's funny when I started the the, the the discussion, I just said, oh, can I get a show of hands for people that listen to the podcast? And it was like 90% of the room. Oh, wow. So that was, that was pretty cool. That's nice. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, so far so good. But yeah, that's my week so far, but it's only Wednesday. So it, it could get more crazy between now and Friday. Fair enough. <laughs> Now, today, we're joined by our lovely friend all the way from Chicago in the States, Brittany Crosdell. Brittany, how are you today? I'm fabulous. I'm here with you guys. Well, hey, now, we've been <laughs> speaking about this podcast for a long, 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 long time, and we've all been busy, and you've been building a clinic that we're going to get onto later. But first, yes. um, how did we meet? Because I, I remember now, I, I went to MCAS Paris, I think it was last year, and mm-hmm. randomly, I sort of got invited to some drinks with the American team from Allegan. And, right. you know, you were there. And I think you said, oh, I've listened to the podcast and we just became friends through that. Yep. I listened to the podcast for years. Um, was it? Mm, I think it's uh, Chris's. Chris Cardini wasn't there, but um, one of his colleagues introduced us. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, hey, I know you. I listened to that podcast for years. How did you hear about the podcast initially? You know what? I was looking just for more information in aesthetics and I listened to podcasts. At, I, actually, a lot of true crime podcasts. Uh, yes. I had a second and, and I had just searched aesthetic podcasts and your guys' was popped up. Um, yours and then I, afterwards it was Grant Stevens and I forget yeah. what it was called, but I think he only did like three or four episodes. I think he's done a few more. It's quite good. It's it's much more businessy, but it's really good. So shout out to to Grant if you're listening. Don't know if you do. <laughs> so this episode, I believe, is episode two of what we call disasters and solutions. We plan to do a lot more of these earlier on, and we've been trying to organise one or two that haven't quite got there. But um, these episodes look at, I guess, some of the more unusual, difficult, or, or even outright disastrous outcomes for patients and. You know, just to be clear, this isn't about judgment of bad injecting. It's more about how to go about looking after our patients and what to do in those disasters. And Britt, you you sort of went viral in America and around the world. When was it? About two years ago after managing a patient? Yeah, it was um, 2021. Yep. March, Uh, April 2021. Could you just tell us a little bit about uh, who you are? Obviously, you're in Chicago, a little bit about your practice, maybe a bit about your background and how you came to find yourself in the aesthetic space, because they're all a bunch of misfits and rogues that have come from different places um, in the medical or business space. So could you just give us a little bit of a sort of elevator pitch about who you are? Absolutely. Absolutely. So my name is Brittany Crosdell. I'm a nurse practitioner in Chicago, Illinois. I actually started in medicine um, through the emergency room. I worked at a local hospital called Northwestern. And knowing that I always wanted to get into what I thought was cosmetic dermatology, um, I ended up in plastic surgery, but I wanted to get into cosmetic dermatology in the States. We can't specialize. You have to get your generalist entry into nursing first. Um, so I like procedures and um, the ER really called to me because you got a little bit of everything, but not too much of one thing. <laughs> and uh, I started I started taking my nurse practitioner um, program while I was working midnights at Northwestern and 
kind of just reading uh, as many books as I could on injection and cosmetic uh, dermatology. So I thought for sure lasers, injectables. Um, and after four years in the ER, I graduated with my NP. I thought I could only inject as a nurse practitioner. I didn't realize nurses could inject uh, fully in the States. Um, so I waited a little bit longer than I needed to. And I started at a local med spot and then from there moved to a plastic surgery office. What year was this when you sort of graduated and and sort of got your first job in in the industry? Uh, It was, I graduated 2014 with my nurse practitioner um, degree. So yeah, 2014. Okay. 2014. And who, who trained you, Britt? Like, how did you start injecting? Did you choose pharma? Did you go on a third party course? Like, you know, who, who was your mentor back then? You know what? When I first started, um, I followed a lot of people on YouTube. Mm. It's terrible to say because now we have so much at our disposal. But there really wasn't much there for me. Um, so I started a med spa and the medical director, I rarely saw her. I think I met her twice in the year I was there. Um, so I pretty much my first year, I had a book full of patients and it felt like trial by fire. I carried my textbooks around with me with every appointment. And I'd give them like, as I say, okay, I'm going to put some numbing cream on you. Go ahead and just lay back and relax. And I'd stand behind their head, like reading the pages. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Yes. This is right. This is right. Um, and you know, you, you learn that way. And that's very much medicine too, an emergency medicine. You kind of just get thrown into it. Um, it's not ideal. We do so much better. We know more, we do better now, but, uh, from there, I went on to plastic surgery, and this plastic surgeon really took me under his wing. He is an amazing person, a great educator, um, and really had me shadow him, taught me what he does in his consultation process, um, the surgical follow-ups. I did a lot of his post-ops as well, and then from there grew my clientele from meeting them. What was that doctor's name? Who was the plastic surgeon? I feel like Dr. it is John, Yeah. I know, Dr. John Q. Cook is his okay. name. And where's he located? Is he in Chicago? Chicago. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Chicago. Still practicing today? He's still practicing. He's been in practice 36, 37 years. Wow. Okay. So seen yeah. a lot, done a lot. And so he was a plastic yep. surgeon that took an interest in injectables, which was quite unusual, particularly for back then, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very unusual. Um, he's kind of, he really is a MacGyver. He <laughs> loved lasers as well. Yeah. And would just kind of, you know, parse everything together because he really, he wanted to offer the patients everything. I That's actually, he went to school with Dr. Alan Putterman, um, who's an oculoplastic surgery or surgeon. And um, he wrote, he's the one who came up with the marginal reflex distance, MRD. That's how we measure ptosis. Um, wow. And so he would come into the office and that's the beginning of my ptosis knowledge. Well, that leads nicely into the well, closest case. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say also, Britt, um, you've had a bit of a stellar journey. So, you know, less than yeah. 10 years ago, you're now teaching internationally, nationally, obviously, you represent a couple of companies and the pharma companies, you're also a member of CMAC. So life has obviously propelled you much further since then. So just, you know, tell us who you train for and what your roles are. Sure, absolutely. So I am uh, a national trainer for Galderma and for Allergan. I am on the board of CMAC with Jake. 
Um, and I actually just the other day, I was messaging with you guys. I was managing a TOSIS case through CMAC. I would say on a weekly weekly basis, I, I get at least one TOSIS case that I'm helping manage from around the world. Not yeah. through CMAC alone, Instagram, referrals. Um, but I, from uh, the plastic surgery office, I went on and opened up a med spa with a couple of friends and then since left. And now I have my own with my current business partner and partner in life and who's a plastic surgeon. Right. Awesome. And I had the pleasure of meeting him in Miami recently. You did? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I forget his name. What was his name? Let's shout him out. Uh, David, Dr. David Hill. There you go. David, I like nice him already. He's got a great name. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he does. First of all, we're talking about the topic of eyelid ptosis um, after toxins. So for those newbies who, who may not know what a ptosis is or hopefully have never had one, what, what do we mean by ptosis, first of all? We mean the eyelid drooping. Um, that's kind of layman's terms. That's what patients will come and say, I don't want that eye, my eyelid to droop. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, we're paralyzing the muscle with a neuromodulator, um, the main muscle that allows it to elevate and it causes it to relax down. Anything that's three millimeters or more of ptosis MRD um, is considered a ptosis. So tell us a little bit about the patient that that had the that had the ptosis complication in terms of, you know, obviously they were getting treatment somewhere else. And at what stage did they present themselves to you? And it's always a difficult sort of proposition for an injector to have a complication from somewhere else rock up on their doorstep because sometimes it can be difficult to ascertain all the facts. Patients may not remember. They might be cagey oh, yeah. about uh, certain bits of information that you need to sort of assess and treat correctly. So just give us a little bit of a a bit of a background or backfill a little bit for us. Sure. So her name is Whitney. Um, and she actually was, she was seen at another clinic, the surgeon's office who had a nurse injector. She had been seeing this injector for my understanding a year or two. And um, she was 10 days out, called the clinic and said she had a brow, her brow felt heavy. So the clinic had her come on in. The nurse thought, she was adjusting the brow for positioning. Um, and it was from that injection point that caused the blepharotosis. Because about 10 days after that injection, uh, it began five days, but 10 days after that injection is when I, um, that surgeon called me and asked me to help him manage this complication. Mm. So at the time, I was at my other clinic. We had just opened during COVID. Mm. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, sure, come on in. I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know her history. That uh, information was omitted from me. Um, and I just started getting tagged on Instagram and the local injector community started texting me. I had no idea who she was. Um, she was, again, only 10 days out from the correction. So I had her wait four more days. I have a strict rule of waiting two full weeks. I just want to assess the severity of it. So if I'm going to make a correction, I can hopefully correct um, with the right dose. Mm -hmm. And so, what, what was it that made this case so sort of exciting, you know, capture the imagination of so many people? Was it the, the, the patient themselves or was it just so, so unusual the way it was sort of presented? You know, I believe it was a bit of both. So the patient herself, she is a really lovely woman. Very, um, she's a beauty blogger. Mm -hmm. And she's very beautiful. She's very open about getting treatments. And because she was so candid about her experience, 
it kind of left her open for everyone to kind of look gawk. Some people were ruthless and said terrible things and shamed her for, you know, um, taking part in aesthetic medicine. And others are really rooting her on for being honest about her journey and saying, you know, hey, this is what can happen. Here are the risks. Um, so, you know, that's a bit about her. I really applaud her. Uh, it's, I think she got a lot of, a lot more negative press. You know, some people will say, yeah, her Instagram following, you know, grew and certainly it did. But we did a, a live together about a year after the incident. The things people say is just awful, awful, mm. awful, inhumane things that um, I'm shocked people, they just feel brave behind a keyboard. There's no, there's no consequence. You wouldn't walk up to someone in the street and say the mm. things that you're willing to say because there's no consequence. So people get real yeah. brave behind a keyboard. Yeah. But I'd like to see if they'd actually have the audacity to say the things that they say when they're standing face to face with someone. It's it's sort of culture that's sort of been baked in to us, not just yeah. in relation to this industry, but just worldwide. It's uh, it's very toxic and people yeah, say all sorts of horrible things. Totally true. Yeah, Our, our industry is particularly like that. It's a very polarized tribal kind of uh, atmosphere, even you know, within, within our practitioners, let alone our mm. um, patients and everyone else. But yeah, when you get online on Instagram and you get the doers and the donters. It gets a bit messy. So, you know, but kudos to her because I, I remember, I think I watched the original post and she was sort of hiding her ptosis eye with, I think, her fringe or her hand. And she was talking about, I had Botox the other day and, and then she sort of sort of showed it. And you're sure it's, it's, it's a decent ptosis. Yeah. But, yes. you know, what amazing education to talk about it and show people what it is because I can talk to a thousand people in my consent process about it. But, you know, maybe we should show pictures in our consent process. Maybe that's the way forward because it doesn't really make any sense until you see it. Yeah. So, and these complications are relatively, I know you're dealing with a few of them because you're working with CMAC, but if you look at how many treatments are performed on a daily basis around the world, the the occurrence is, is quite minuscule with yeah. sort of serious adverse events or even serious aesthetic ad, adverse events or uh, undesirable outcomes. Um, so... What was the patient's mindset when she came to you? I mean, obviously something like this is, is quite stressful. Um, you said she was a beautiful woman. So, you know, I'm assuming her appearance is a, is a big part of the way that she sort of brands herself and, and sort of makes money. So what was her mindset and how did you manage that? Because I know Jake will be very interested in, in the technical side, but I'm sort of really interested um, in the in the human side and, and the psychology behind it. And, and how did that unfold and how did you manage her? You know, it's really interesting. Um, every, and she was you know, not unlike anyone else, but every patient that I've seen to help manage ptosis, she said the same thing that everyone has always said. And they say they feel so ashamed for mm. being vain. Mm. Um, and it's not about vanity, right? But they feel this immense amount of shame for this complication because now they're wearing it on their face. And now everyone knows that they tried this beauty treatment to make them more attractive and it ended up leaving them temporarily disfigured. Um, so she was very distraught. Um, in, I think she was managing it quite well. She's got a great support system. Um, she also had, you know, dealt with her own, ad, you know, overcome some things in her personal life that I think gave her grit and resilience. Um, so she was kind of able to laugh a little bit about it. She was really frustrated that her injector sent her um, 
to, to another clinic to manage it. So that was upsetting for her. She felt like she lost trust completely because she had been with this person for a few years. And then they didn't, you know, well, she said they weren't returning her calls anymore. Um, Obviously the office reached out to try to get help. They did the right thing. If they didn't know how to manage it, they, you know, referred on. So they did their due diligence to get her help. Um, But from the patient side, she didn't feel that. And so I think it wasn't communicated to her in a way where she could understand or hear it. Um, But yeah, she was very distraught, very upset. And I talked to her. I said, listen, here's the risk. I am going to do pretarsal injections. So injections along your eyelash line, just above your eyelashes. Um, And worst case scenario, I completely knock out your eyelid. (laughs) Right now you have, she had a little bit of mobility in her eyelid. It wasn't a true complete ptosis. Um, But I said, you know, worst case scenario, this is what could happen. Best case scenario, you're able to open your eye and they look almost equal. and she had never met me before. Can yeah. you imagine trusting someone with this correction you had never met before? She hadn't heard anything about me. Um, and she was already in this, this state of distress. And she it took her a little bit. She's like, all right, all right, let me think about it. Let me think about it. And she's like, okay, let's just do it. So I, with her, um, I was a little bit more conservative because I had never treated her. And she told me that she is an over-responder. She, she said, my injector always has a really light dose and I'm just completely frozen. Um, looking back on it, I would have increased her dose, but I had never injected her before. So I was listening to the patient um, as well, but she had a great correction. So just to be clear, the clinic did reach out to you and gave you some sort of, you know, referral, I guess, but the patient, you know, I guess understandably felt a little bit like, passed over to you like you know they she abandoned. felt like yeah she felt <laughs> abandoned even though maybe it wasn't the case but uh, i think it's a good learning point in the consent process when you're doing injectables obviously talk about you know the risks etc but what happens when that does happen mm. so will you re- maybe refer to a specialist uh will you be involving someone else maybe even name that person if you have someone yeah. who you send mm-hmm. to regularly just so it's even if they you know don't take it on board initially. It, it, it has been discussed. Well, and I guess this, and I'm going to use this as an opportunity to shamelessly plug our Patreon. Um, I think that <laughs> ha- having a support network around you of, of practitioners um, who potentially are more experienced, have seen different things. I think a lot of injectors are out there. They're like an island. They're on their own. It's a very yeah. competitive space. There's a lot of bitchiness sometimes as there is in every industry. And so I think this would just be a message to reiterate the fact that you need to find a community of people that how you have, particularly in your local area, um, people online that can give you advice or you can share your stresses and maybe get some some hints and tips and, and suggestions. But you need to have like, you know, your emergency sort of Rolodex or contact list where you say, okay, in my local area, I've got a plastic surgeon. I've got another really experienced injector who's maybe done a lot of complication work before. I've, just having people, you know, that you can, you've got on speed dial to call when, when things go bad or when things go down. Mm. And so a lot of the time, I think people are potentially scared to pass on patients or scared to say to the patient, you need to go here because they makes them feel like they're incompetent. And, and, and a, a strategy that's worked really well for me in the past and something I've passed on to my injectors is have those people. And just the simple line that, that to say something 
along the lines of the best person to deal with this is so-and-so. And this is why, because they specialize in this type of thing. This is what they do all day, every day. I want to make sure that you get the best outcome and this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that just having having that strategy in place before the emergency occurs and having that relationship and having the the, the sort of way you're going to explain it to the patient, sort of pre-rehearsed or you, you've gone through it in your head because when when you get these sort of things occurring, sometimes there isn't a lot of time to think about it. So you know, find a community and, and be prepared for these situations in advance. Sorry, Jake. No, no, 100%. Yeah. Um, did you get any idea of what the initial treatment was? Dosing, pattern, what brand of toxin? Like, did, you know, did you know anything? I did. I had a, um, I was texted a screenshot of paper charting. Okay. Um, so, yep, I had a, I had an idea and um, the correction dose definitely is what caused it. So what areas did they have initially treated? Was it three areas? So initially... Or- yeah, initially it was glabellar uh, region, frontalis, and a little bit of crow's feet, very mild in crow's feet. Um, and when the patient came back, she, well, she was, there was a little bit of discrepancy of what was, what I was texted and what was told to the patient she was given. Um, and again, you never know, you know, patients get a little bit, also patients can be confused. Um, she thought it was a different dose than what I had received. So, um, but definitely I had seen where she was injected uh, for the correction, and that was just beneath the um, <laughs> superorbital notch for brow lifting. Okay. So actually, funny, with sort of talking about this, I had someone shadowing me yesterday, Dr. Martina Levy, oh, yeah. one of our patrons. And I don't know why, the, the, the focus of the day became how to lift the brow and, and lift the eye, because a lot of our patients had, you know, brow ptosis or, or heavy lids. And I was basically, my take home point to Martina was get away from thinking about this cookie cutter idea of there is only one spot of where you do it. It has to be where you see the muscle pulling because everyone it's slightly different. Or if you've had microbladed eyebrows, (laughs) you're going to sort of use it as a landmark and it's not the real eyebrow. So, you know, injectors be cautious, but basically you think they went too low and, and, and basically were either at the top of the lid or in the lid. When they did their brow lifting, yeah, I think low and deep, and the dilution was higher. Was okay, two point five reconstitution. And so you administered the treatment. They said, "Let's go for it. Let's take the risk." It's a it's a fifty fifty. And so, yeah. what, what happened after that? Was it an immediate improvement? And yeah, with um within twenty four hours, her lids started to lift. I also so um. Oxybutazoline, hydrochloride had just, Upneak had just gotten approved in the US during COVID, but really had failed to launch because it's COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had some samples left at the clinic that the rep had dropped off. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is FDA approved. I don't have to prescribe biopidine. I have it in-house. Great. Let's try that. Yeah. Um, but I also tried to prescribe it for her. And at the time that there was only one pharmacy in New Jersey that actually distributed it. Um, and so I went through, I was arguing with the insurance company, trying to get it approved. Turns out that there was only one uh, pharmacy at the time that was distributing it. So I, I ended up having to call them directly to ship to her, yeah. which is rare here. You can usually prescribe anywhere um, to any pharmacy and a medication will be filled. Well, maybe we'll come on to the fine details of how we treat and, and what you were treating because it really comes down to the anatomy and like you yes. were saying before, like maybe they went too deep or maybe the, the liquid sort of went somewhere where it shouldn't. But going back to the business side of things, is there any legal implication or any 
insurance issue? Like who 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 is responsible for this if things get worse? Uh if you know, you know, because now you're injecting her. So how does it work in America? Well, very litigious in America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very litigious. Um, but yes, there are absolutely legal implications for assuming this patient. Yeah. Um, and the risk becomes your own. If, if you don't wait for the full effect of the original treatment to be seen so you can fully understand the severity of the adverse event, which some people I've seen jump in a little bit too soon, trying to correct it. And then the original injections are still setting in and they're like, why is it getting worse? Why is it getting worse? And that patient thinks that the person that's there to help them made it even worse. Um, So I think you have to wait the appropriate amount of time before you go in and try to help a patient. Um, Yes, there's legal implications. I think that it's our duty and it goes to help these patients. It goes against the ethos of medicine to turn a patient away when they're in need. And I also am a firm, firm, firm believer um, that if we can help guide the community that we're in, we help elevate everybody and we're stronger as a team or whole. So I don't mind. I know some people refuse to take uh, complications. I take occlusions. I take... um, toxin, you know, complications. Uh, it's it's so sad when you see a patient in such distress. Now, true complications, not psychosomatic complications. <laughs> I'll take true complications. Um, and I'm happy to help those patients out. I still, to this day, knock on, knock on wood, I haven't, I can't, don't have the heart to charge those patients. It's really hard because they're emotionally so distraught and it takes time out of your schedule. But it's also a quick, easy, manageable fix for the most of them are aside from uh, the VOs. VOs are a lot more time consuming. I'm assuming those patients become lifetime members of they your team. They become part of your family. And then if you take care of someone and then in their moment of need and you don't charge them, they ain't going anywhere else ever. Yeah, they do. Actually, I have two local um, who, well, they, just they come in all the time now. So they're great. They become advocates for you. Yeah. So, That's awesome. They become Wait, friends. Yeah, absolutely. Kudos to you because it it's really stressful. Yeah. They come in in a panic, you know, like they said, there's no, well, often no collateral history. Uh, they disrupt your day potentially, depending on how urgent it is. And it, yeah. I think it's, stressful it, yeah. it really is but you know if you have the skill um then you know like you said it, it, it's your it's your core dr- driver of being a nurse or being a doctor that that's why we started it right are you going to not charge your patients for well look i mean i was going to ask you that because from a business perspective forget the ethics it's just you're out of pocket for something that you yes. didn't do so why why do you take that stance i have a really i think it it's a disservice to our industry to charge a patient. Um, And I, you know, we can go argue both sides of it. Business wise, it it definitely is a hit to the business, but I think our business business can withstand that. And it only helps us. It helps remove the fear um, from the patient from never seeking treatment again. It helps turn a negative into a positive, I think. 
Um, and hopefully the original injector gives them the opportunity to learn how to manage this again in the, on their own in the future. Um, and often, so some of my complication that I've have been referred to me at, at cases I've used recently in the paper that was published in ASJ and they don't mind. They're like, go ahead. You can use my imagery. Um, because they're so happy to hopefully prevent this from happening to someone else. Yeah. I have to say, I've been on the, on the receiving end of this. I referred a patient to another doctor, I don't know, five years ago. It was my first ever VO. Um, to be honest, I wasn't even sure if I had already partially treated her, but I just wanted second pair of eyes and and almost for the patient's reassurance to know that I have done the best for them, second pair of eyes and second opinion, etc. And I wanted that doctor or that clinic to tell me what the fees were, whatever they were, whether it was for the hyalase or whatever treatments. And I would happily cover that. I had no issue as the referring doctor, but that that process was never made clear. And then I think they billed the patient directly and she obviously um, got upset and it does get messy. So I think it's worth as the referrer and, and maybe the um, receiving doctor to have that conversation at yes. the point of referral just so it's clear, because at the end of the day, it's the patient who's in the middle. And they're yes. the ones who get most upset if it's not communicated properly. So that's just a learning point as well. Yeah, It is. It's difficult if you don't, if you're not able to receive report, right? You really should have a handoff, especially yes. if they're being referred to you. A quick phone call, curbside, you know, consult or, hey, this is what's going on. What do you think I should do? Happy to do that. It's really difficult when you don't have that but I still haven't charged a patient. Uh, there was one case where I, we had to use so much Hylinex. I did um, call the referring physician just to cover cost. That was it. Oh, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're not making profit, but you know there are yeah. materials used. So yeah. I think it's reasonable. And in fact, you know, you're taking on the legal responsibility, insurance responsibility. And if you don't, you, you're kind of a bit more vulnerable, I think. Yeah, yes. this whole situation's got my my brain just scrambling because I'm I'm hearing what you're saying and I think what you've done is very admirable. Um, having been someone that's run businesses and and seen probably everything that can go wrong, I, I sort of do also would recommend that people proceed with caution that they should probably talk to their lawyer if they don't have a lawyer. Mm. Get one. You need someone on speed dial um, in this industry, particularly because yes. you live in a litigious space. I mean, America more so than Australia, but we're not far behind sometimes giving away things for free. I mean, these complications are outlined in people's consent forms. They sign up knowing that this is a reality of what potentially could happen, right? So if you start giving away things for free, it can almost look like an admission of guilt. It can be used against you. So there are, you're sort of caught between like morally and ethically wanting to do the right things, but there's also the reality of, am I exposing myself? Am I exposing the people that work for me? other practitioners, people that rely on this business for an income, I might potentially exposing them to the risk of something like that. So I think that it's always trying to balance doing the right thing from an ethical and, and human perspective, but also to not expose yourself unnecessarily. So talk to a lawyer ahead of time, develop a strategy for this. If you are going to take on someone's work, potentially there's an additional consent form that can be signed that sort of almost clears you from anything. You, you know, They understand that they've come to you with a complication. You're going to do your very best to resolve it. But if it isn't improved, that this somehow, you know, removes a risk for you. So I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. I'm just saying proceed with caution and try and always balance, you know, the medical human side with with the business reality. Because yeah. unfortunately, you know, some people could potentially fall fall victim to this for for people. That oh try. yes, 
Well, it's so I actually I have a um, legal team on retainer yep. and <laughs> I did I yep <laughs> run this past uh, them and they actually and every lawyer is going to you ask 10 yep. different lawyers the same question you get 10 different opinions. Um, but uh, our lawyers very much were in support of if you're giving it complimentary that and you're not gaining profit from it that only works in your favor because you're trying to help you're acting in good faith and goodwill towards the patient um so that bit makes me feel a little bit better but i also you can't build a business off of treating complications complimentary right um if we could be leone shelke and create a center here (laughs) where we can actually survive and publish out of it. That'd be great. But that's that's not the business I'm running. Fair enough. No, that's a good chat, guys. So let's talk about the, I guess, the topic of ptosis itself, because there'll be a lot of listeners freaking out, thinking, oh my God, I hope this never happens to me. So how exactly do you think it happens? I think in this case, it's reasonably clear, but just, you know, let's say you've done a standard three area treatment. You've gone nowhere the eyelid. And sometimes these things apparently happen out of nowhere. What's your understanding of the mechanism, Brett? I believe it happens from depth of injection. So we train, it's a, we train to inject intramuscularly. And when I originally learned the five point glabellar injection, it was a deep injection to the tail of the corrugator. Um, and we, I wasn't told to palpate the orbital rim. Um, I went to a course down in Florida and, you know, you just kind of look at, oh, well, here's what the textbook says. Bam, 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 bam. Let's do this. You know? Um, so I think that a lot of us in the beginning, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're treating basically off of a textbook. We're not looking at the patient's anatomy. Yes. We're not palpating where the muscle's pulling. We're not palpating where the bone lies. We're also looking at patients in their tattoos or eye, eyebrows are drawn on or repositioned, um, which just, you have to touch the patient. So so I think that it's caused, the cause is from depth of injection and the reconstitution. So I think on label, a lot of people, um, on label, we inject a, uh, 2.5 mLs. Um, if you're reconstituting, that's on label with 100 units. I personally do one-to-one. So I inject with one mL per 100 units of neuromodulator. Because no, it would get confusing for people who don't yeah. use it. Botox. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, or even if I'm doing Discord, it's going to be a one-to-one. So I reconstitute it differently. So it's one-to-one. Yeah. Um, same thing, Xeomin. I don't inject uh, Jibo or... Dexify? Uh, Dax, yeah, Dax, I haven't injected that yet. Um, Say that again? uh, So I was going to say Daxify because we don't have it here either. Okay. Um, We have it. I just haven't injected it yet. I'm kind of waiting to see what my local injectors are seeing from their patients. And some of my injectors, my friends have injected themselves. They did split phase study. And so just haven't brought it on yet. Okay. Well, we will do a Daxify podcast in the future when eventually comes. I wanted to ask, so, you know, you, you mentioned a five-point glabella. So what do you do that's different? Um, and how, you know, might, might you sort of explain to the listeners who are new? Sure. So I think it's really important to know your anatomy, right? That I feel like we say that all the time, but in, it's very, very important with neuromodulators. It's important with dermal fillers. Um, it's important to know the origin of the muscle and the insertion point. So what are you treating? Know your why. 
don't just follow a textbook. Don't just follow your trainer that comes in and says, do this. And you're blindly just injecting the patient, not understanding your why. So I will do it. You know, I will inject, I'll do a three point, five point, seven point, nine point, eleven point. Really just depends on what the patient needs. I'm comfortable going all the way across the brow. I'm more superficial as I move out laterally because I want to get the tail end of the corrugator or I want to make sure I'm just getting the obicularis, the lateral recruitment portion of the obicularis. Not, um, and that's why I use a one-to-one because I don't want it to disperse up a little bit further towards frontalis or interdigitates. And I don't want to inject too deeply where I could potentially risk causing ptosis. Uh, I also only use the five eighths of an inch, 32 gauge BD syringe. So when I'm injecting neuromodulating a globella, my the belly of the corrugator is deep. As I move out laterally, the tail end of the corrugator inserts into the dermis, and you can see that pull when you ask the patients to contract their eyebrows. And I inject very superficially. I might inject, let's say four, three, two, so I kind of taper out, so it's a soft pull. That's exactly what I do. And, you know, that that more lateral one into basically the dermis, it stings a bit because that's yes. where the pain receptors are, but you, you kind of know you're in the right plane if they're getting a yeah. bit of you know, so That's the most painful part. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I start watering it like I injected that. Can I ask you both a question? Do you, do you think that there's any increase in these types of sort of adverse events from people not following post-care instructions correctly? Um, I had an injector that I know had uh, like a pseudotosis that just randomly occurred. Um, she thought she had done everything correctly. Then the patient came back in and had a motorcycle helmet with her. Mm. And the question was, well, do you always ride your bike? Oh, yeah, I ride my bike every day. How far away from the clinic are you? Oh, about an hour. So this patient left the clinic, put her motorbike helmet on, which is assumingly like pressed against her skin quite firmly for over an hour. Mm. And so do you think there's any sort of evidence to suggest that that type of stuff could increase the occurrence of these sort of complications? I'll let you answer first, Brett. Yeah, so I think so only if you're injecting, you've created that pathway for the needle from the needle. And then yes, definitely a patient smushing it with a helmet, it allows a pathway for that neuromodulator to potentially travel. Um, And if you're injecting deep, I just, you know... you're going to potentially, you could hit the superorbital. They say, so we theorize this from the superorbital. It travels from the foramen or the notch from the artery or down the nerve pathway or some patients or some patients may be injected very deeply and you pass the orbital septum. I mean, that would have to be a really erroneous injection, but I've seen wild things happen. Um, but yeah, I think if you're creating that pathway via the needle introducing it with that pathway, then yeah, theoretically a patient could definitely um, cause that to be worsened, right? They might have a, a they might have a subclinical ptosis, let's say, but then using a motorcycle helmet and there's that pathway from the needle to allow more of that neuromodulator to travel down there, theoretically potentially make it worse. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree. I mean, you know, we give our patients these kind of time-honored instructions after their uh, toxin. Don't massage, don't rub, don't, you know, lie down on a massage table, right. um, you know, avoid exercise and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes I, I think it's kind of maybe out-of-date information that was just given, you know, 20 years ago because they thought it was sensible without any evidence. <laughs> yes. But then sometimes yeah. I think, okay, we're injecting a liquid into the muscle and for a period of time it's kind of 
presumably sloshing around until the motor end plate takes up that toxin. So sure, it makes kind of sense that you don't squish your forehead into a helmet. Um, <laughs> to me, I, I don't know that makes sense, but uh, who knows? But I mean, I, I watched a really interesting lecture with Michael Caine at just AMWC a month or two ago. And oh, I saw this. Yeah, it was really quite a passionate and interesting lecture where he basically disputed that the toxin, you know, leaks into the eyelid effectively. He said that he thinks it's that basically injectors is just injecting too high on the glabella. And so they're catching frontalis with, you know, the the toxin diffusing into the frontalis, causing a, I guess it's more of a brow drop than an ectosis. Yeah. Um, but you know, an actual ptosis like your patient had, Brett, I, I I strongly suspect it's depth of injection, or maybe hmm. you know David's little story about squashing the forehead into a helmet. I don't, yeah. I don't know. We can't prove these things. They they are quite rare. I mean, how how rare do you think it is? Because you know, when you open a, bo- a a box of toxin, it will quote you on a study about one, maybe two percent, which I think's incredibly high and scary, but. What do you think it actually is? So I might be biased because I tend to get a lot of them. Um, but I was actually, I texted Joel Cohen. He had a recent study here in the States. And he said um, a less than 0.7%. I also, there's a study in 2016 from the Aesthetic Surgery um, Journal that quoted up to 5.7% in novice injectors that this occurs which is astronomically high i think it's tough for me to say i think again i'm biased i see a lot i get a lot of cases and i get it from all around the world and those are just the individuals who are comfortable reaching out to me um they're not reporting it none let's be clear none of these injectors are reporting it yeah Hmm. so i think the incidence actually higher because what the data we have is just what's being reported in a study Correct. Yeah. Experience injectors. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you think, Britt, I'll ask you first and I'll I'll get Jake to comment. Do you think that because these treatments are now so common, it's a lot of the fears around these treatments have kind of worn off to a certain extent. Do you think that there's an element of complacency amongst injectors and patients in terms of taking all the steps to, to mitigate risk, to being that little bit extra careful, to making sure they are following post-care instructions. Do you, do you think there's some some validity to that to that proposition? I think there's a, a, a bit of a lack of awareness. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if it's complacency. Once once you become an experienced, I guess you go through that phase where you're, you're kind of a little bit more lax and relaxed of your approach until you kind of tighten up again and be like, oof. But... Uh, in my experience, it's really, it's the part-time injectors that have maybe a, a gig somewhere else. And this is just extra like their side hustle, um, because they don't really have the time to dive into it. They don't have the time to dedicate, um, to learning about the complications and, and knowing your why you really should, in my opinion, you shouldn't move forward with the procedure if you don't know how to get out of it or know how to refer, who you're going to refer to, to help you manage this. Um, and so that's something I, in, when I was in emergency medicine, I remember, you know, the first week I had to learn ACLS and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I have to run my own code by myself. So every day before going to work, I'd run the code through my head, like just in my mind. 
And same thing that I think that's really trained me anytime I make a new injection or I'm trying a new technique, I think the process out, I think a couple of steps ahead. What if this goes wrong? What am I going to look for? If it does go wrong, what will I do? Um, And that really helps guide my treatment plan. I don't see that in everyone. And when I don't see it, it's usually in individuals who don't do this full time. Mm. Yeah. It's almost like a unconscious incompetence they don't know what they don't know it's just yeah yeah what do you think joe well, well i was gonna say from what yeah. you said Britt, if you know because you, you're managing maybe more than many and, and you're part of cmac and you became well known so people will contact you with this problem so do you think just anecdotally that the people who are referring to you are maybe more experienced sorry inexperienced versus experienced because that would sort of go along with what you were saying about it's a technique related thing you they maybe just a bit too deep or they didn't fully understand the anatomy and as more experience you get and more and more understanding of the anatomy you get you would just avoid that by default or, or more likely to avoid it yeah it's really it's interesting there are a lot of highly educated um practitioners physicians and pspas um, nurses who have these complications and i don't know if it's it's from a lack of experience well yeah i think even though they're highly specialized in uh, might be dermatology plastic surgery um it still happens because they're not injecting every day i think the specialty of injections doing assessment with injections um that is the in my opinion the kind of eliminating factor if you specialize in injections only yeah yeah to be clear it's not how long you've been a doctor it's how long have you been yes. injecting and how much yes. you've that time still i'm you know i can i'm sure you train injectors as well but when you meet someone who's been doing it for 10 plus years sometimes it is quite revealing how little they know or yes or or, or how little sort of evolved i guess in well, that time maybe i can summarize it in there's a correlation between time and skill, but they're not mutually exclusive. One, just yeah. because, do you know what I mean? So people go, oh, I've been doing this for 20 years, but you've done in 20 years. I mean, how many patients have you have you treated? Is this mm. just, yeah. yeah. May I ask, Britt, what, what is your process of explaining complications to patients before you treat? Um, I've spoken to injectors who sort of just glaze over it or here's the form, sign it and we'll get going. I know there's some that go through like almost painstaking detail to the point where the patient's like almost scared, room. scared shitless and not wanting to get treatment. So what's what's your strategy? Because you're obviously very, very experienced in dealing with this. So can you take us through your process? Yeah, I think it's important patients understand the risk. I don't, um, I, my goal isn't to scare them. It's just to give them informed uh, I want them to be have give informed consent, right? Um, so for neuromodulator, I'll say, you know, this is going to kick in in about two weeks. It'll last you three to four months. Um, common side effects are going to be redness, swelling. You'll look like you have little mosquito bites when you leave here for about 10 minutes or so. Um, rare, you know, in rare cases, you're going to have some bruising um, that will, again, heal within a week or so. And in incredibly rare cases, you can get, and I'll always mention a blephrotosis. Always, always, always. Um, you can have a blephrotosis. You can have paralysis of, you know, an, a muscle adjacent to the area that I'm injecting. If that were to happen, I'd want you to contact me immediately, and we would start to mitigate. Um, we'll go through mitigating factors to try to alleviate that. What's your aftercare advice? What do you actually say to them? 
you know, I say try not to do too much. Don't press. I say don't press in the area. Please no makeup. I do ask them to contract for the first hour, right? Make the angry face, raise your brows, smile a bit, call your mom. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, And, and really that's about it. People ask me if they can work out later. I, you know, I'm kind of, I don't, it it depends on what you're doing for working out. If you're going to do headstands and, you know, face plant yoga styles, maybe not um, right away, but I don't mind walking. I don't mind um, low intensity exercises or some weightlifting. I think that's fine. So no jujitsu or wrestling is what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the other other (laughs) practical things like don't lie down on a massage table and squish your face. Or yeah. your face into a motorcycle helmet. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, 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 want, I want to drill down on the evidence. I'm going to call Michael Kane and see what he says. So, oh my yeah. gosh. I had a, a patient call me, um, called the office. She was like, oh my, I got in a car and the visor hit me in the forehead. I'm so afraid. She was so distraught and she thought that she had ruined her Botox. I'm like, you're fine. You're good. Well, totally fine. Funny enough, yeah, just this week I had a patient and she told, I've seen her multiple times, but she almost, um, <clears throat> volunteered to me that she for about a week after her botox she walks around like a robot scared to touch anything <laughs> and i was like no 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 it's it, i was like you know i might be a bit conservative but i i tell you about 6 to 8 hours just be a little bit careful of course you can scratch yeah. your head or whatever but just no aggressive movements don't wash your face don't you know it, it's very hard to explain to people what right. you can and can't do cuz they either take it one way or the other i've heard that the you know oh sorry go on Brit. You know what I've had a lot recently, actually, the last two weeks is them asking if they can use their tretinoin. What do you guys say? I, I try and keep it as simple as anything that you're going to put on your face or give you a reason to touch your face is doing what I'm asking you not to do, which is rubbing, touching, massaging. So it's not the tretinoin that I care about. It's the act of yeah. moving around mm-hmm. your eyes. Just sort of pressing a little bit further on, on the consultation process, how do you satisfy yourself, Britt, that the patients understood what you've told them? So I have a QR code. They've right. signed consent before they see me. And then I have them sign a verbal consent at right. bedside. Yeah. And then we also walk out again, don't do this, this, this. It's I keep it super simple. Um, I feel confident. I, my patients I've had for a long time as well. Um but I mean, I, I think we also inundate them with information overload. They can scan a QR code on the way out. They get texted before treatment, their pre-care and post-care. And then after treatment, they get texted their post-care and I'm verbalizing with them as well. Yeah. So I feel like it's information overload, but in today's society, you kind of you kind of have to. Yeah. It's like, do your due diligence. Mm-hmm. It's like an element of selective hearing. I think sometimes yeah. people like, you yeah. know, again, the amount of injectors I've spoken to that have said, I've told that, I said it like five times and then they came yes. back and said, you didn't tell me that. What do you think, Jake? Do you struggle with this? Uh, well, you know, I've just always related to, to my surgical days, you know, that's, I guess the gravity even yeah. more important. And I don't think you can prove it. You you, you do exactly what Brits just said. You, you might send them something before the consult so they can read it then you'll verbally do it again and then they sign it and then you remind them as they walk out and and you sort of get them to relay it back to you so you're yeah. not not telling them actually telling you yeah um but you know how, how can you prove that they fully understood that i think you just have to assess are they a competent person did they seem reasonable did they seem mm. confused yeah. can they speak the language you know all of those kind of common things that you're going to 
check off in your mind. And if they satisfy that, you've done it as good as you can. Yeah. I've seen, otherwise you deny everyone. Well, I've seen people that have implemented sort of quick Q and A's that they'll get patients to fill out. So at the end of the consultation, they'll hand them like an iPad with like five or six questions that will sort of make like a quiz, like a quiz. Yeah. To say that like, you know, <laughs> okay. yeah. And, and that seems to have worked quite well for them, but you know, again, do you want to start feeling like you're examining your patient? How much time is it going to take? But I think there could be something in there. If you can implement a, a strategy where you have, you know, four or five really pertinent questions about the major complications or things that are potentially going to be the most, you know. That's interesting. That's really yeah. interesting. I do have them consent with every single treatment, not once a year. So every time I see them, they need to it's consent. It's going to be pretty hard for someone to stand up in a call of law and say, I answered this quiz and I got the answers correct, but I still didn't get told I didn't know what you were saying. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, well, the counter argument is I got it all wrong. Yeah, then you don't treat and, them. <laughs> but, but you've already treated them. I thought when you said you do it on the way out. No, I'm saying before you treat them. So after you finish consulting them, right. before you go to the treatment. So just to say, look, you know, I've given you a lot of information. You know, it's a very um, common sense to me because this is what I do for a living. I just want to make sure that you understand what we're doing here today, what the major risks are, so that we can proceed with me knowing with confidence that you understand what's happening here. Yeah. Something along those lines and, and like five or six questions. It doesn't have to take long. Five, if I've been listening, it should take them 30 seconds. Yeah. And then you can always stand up and say, well, no, Your Honor, or no, you know, <laughs> lawyer so and so. You can see they've answered these questions. Mm. You know, case closed. See you later. We'll have to look into that. Yeah. Anyway, just something to think about. Yeah. So, Britt, before you tell us, I guess, about the the ins and outs of how you go about treating this, I thought um, we would drop in um, Professor Sebastian Cotafana's take yes. on the anatomy because, you know, even the the little muscles in the eyelid, even I had to go back before this podcast just to remind myself exactly where mm. they attach and what's going on. So, I thought I would play you what he says. This is for the benefit of our listeners. And also for our patrons, I'm going to put up some pictures. Yeah, honestly, happy to contribute a little bit to, to the session that you're going to have um, soon. Um, so the the Müller's muscle is um, actually another name for the superior tarsal muscle, like is, for instance, um, Santorini muscle, the other name for Risorio's muscle. So the proper name is superior tarsal muscle. And this muscle um, originates from another muscle, which is actually very rare. Very few muscles in a human body do that because normally they either originate from the bone or from an aponeurosa or something else. But um, Müller's muscle, or to be precise, superior tarsal muscle, originates from the undersurface of levato papebe superioris muscle. So um, this is an interesting concept because um, when you look at the structures of the orbit, the most superior structure of the orbit in terms of muscle-wise is um, the levator papebe superioris muscle, which attaches to the upper pole of the superior tarsal plate. So to the upper pole. And um, this muscle has a muscle belly most and the most part of the muscle belly is hidden inside in the orbit. But as soon as um, the muscle moves anteriorly and covers the globe, it starts to become fibrotic. We call this also aponeurotic, and that is the aponeurosis of the levator papyrus superioris muscle. The transition between muscle belly of the levator and its aponeurosis is indicated by a ligament, a transverse relying ligament, is called white nail ligament. It's also considered as the upper hammock of the eye globe. So it's kind of considered that. So there's kind of a transition between muscle belly and aponeurosis. And 
On the undersurface, at exactly the transition, there is the origin of the superior tarsal muscle, aka Müller's muscle. And Müller's muscle then inserts into the posterior superior aspect of the upper tarsal plates, so a little bit further downwards to the tarsal plate. So when the levator contracts, it elevates the eyelid. And when the superior tarsal muscle slash Müller's muscle contracts, it contributes to the final one to two millimeters of elevation. So Müller's muscle doesn't do the entire elevation. It, it cannot. For this, it's just too small and, and too weak. And its body and contraction style is not made for this much elevation. But it does the final one to two millimeters of um, upper eyelid elevation. Um, the difference between the innervation of the two muscles, um, the levator muscle is a skeletal muscle. And skeletal muscles have neuromuscular junctions and um, have sarcomeres as a histological feature. And its innervation comes from the um, oculomotor nerve. Um, the Müller's muscle is a smooth muscle which connects its muscle fibers via gap junction. And this muscle receives its innervation from the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system originates originally from the neck, from the superior cervical ganglion, and then its fibers travel with the arterial system, including the carotid arteries, and then including the ophthalmic artery plexus, and then provides connection to the, to the respective um, superior tarsal, aka Müller's muscle. And um, the type of neurotransmitter for the levator muscle is that stilcholine, which can be affected by neuromodulators. And the transmitter for the superior tarsal muscle, aka Müller's muscle, that neurotransmitter is an alpha receptor. It also has beta receptors, but it has an alpha receptor. And this is why when phenylephrine or any other sympathomimetic drug is applied, it will result in contraction of the muscle because it just activates the respective muscle. So this is why eye drops with phenylephrine, kind of like this thing that you put into your nose when you're congested in the nose, um, results in additional support. It cannot kind of cure upper eyelidosis, especially when it's induced by toxins, but it can help a little bit. This is why we see an improvement of one to two millimeters um, following the application of uh, phenylephrine eye drops um, after iatrogenic um, upper eyelidosis. So... Um, yeah, I hope that helped so far with the explanation between the two muscles, its location, and um, yeah, have fun in your session. So thank you very much, Sebastian. That was an awesome little commentary. We really appreciate it and hope you're well. So Britt, um, th that's a nice summary of like where things are in the eyelid, but yeah. why don't you just talk to us about the, the, the practicalities of treatment options, and, and you mentioned two treatments that you did for your patient, but you know, just take us through how and why you would do both injections of Botox or a toxin. Then you mentioned there's eye drops. And I guess the third one is basically doing nothing and just leave them alone. Is, is there anything else on yep. the list? Eye patch. Yep. What was that? Uh, uh, yeah. 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 No, that's actually the option I give them is do nothing, just eye drops or pretarsal injections with eye drops. Um, and pretarsal injections are highly, highly effective if they're done correctly. Um, I actually started doing them in when I was at the plastic surgery office. Dr. Alan Putterman had come in and he teaches a lot about blepharitosis um, congenital. He corrects them surgically. 
And um, I had the pleasure of knowing him and his wife very well. So I started correcting them really and actually acquired um, cases. I just see them normally for my their normal neuromodulator and maybe one eye was a bit more totic or they'd show me a picture when they were out, you know, cocktailing and they're like, how come this eye looks like this? <laughs> um, and so I, I had talked to Alan and I also had Dr. Jean Crothers textbook that I referenced and she published about this, her and her husband published about it. Um, so I started reconstituting, though no one talks about the reconstitution. So I started reconstituting one-to-one just because I was really nervous about dispersion because I didn't want it to uh, disperse into the precursal plate. And uh, and so I injected just one unit uh, at the lateral limbus line first to see if I could see anything. And then one unit at the medial limbus line, so two units total. And then I got a little bit more brazen and increased dosing and would move a little bit further laterally. And so what that does is it helps evert and lift up the eyelid. So the pretarsal muscle, when we sleep, it helps our eyelashes, the ciliary line contract um, as we sleep. So it helps us blink. And when we're injecting with neuromodulator, it gives us just an additional millimeter, two millimeters of lift. I've seen more um, anecdotally, but I, with the addition of the oxymetazoline drops, you get another one to two millimeters of lift. So really in the beginning, you need to assess their MRD, marginal reflex distance, how severe is their ptosis. And that's going to tell you what dosing you're going to use of neuromodulator. Knowing that the if you increase neuromodulator along the ciliary line, you're going to increase these side effects and the unwanted side effects of dry eye. Um, so you're going to need to give them either eye drops or ophthalmic ointment when they sleep. You'll have to prescribe that and tell your patients that's what they are to expect. They have to accept that if they want their eyelid to open. So they have to choose one or the other. Keeping it, uh, th- that was amazing, but keeping it super simple. I know we've just heard Sebastian's explanation of the anatomy, but I want to hear what you think is actually happening when you put the Botox on the lateral and medial limbus line. What are you actually treating and why does it lift? Because there's many listeners going, oh my God, you're putting Botox in the eyelid. Isn't it going to make it heavier? No. What are you treating? So very simply, as I would, like I would say to a patient. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So very simply, neuromodulator is the opposite of the muscles intended to do. And that muscle is it's a sphincter. It's contracting, it's closing, it's blinking, pushing down. So if we're adding neuromodulator, it's not going to allow it to push down. It actually helps it relax and constrict. It contracts and it lifts up. So depending on your dosing, it'll lift a little bit more. Depending on your placement, it'll lift. Um, why are you lateral and medial to the limbic line versus central? What What's the importance? So that's a great question because I have um, Dr. Steve Yolen. He t- teaches on um, injecting it centrally. I'm very nervous about hitting the tarsal plate because the, um, the levator inserts at the tarsal. So in my eyelid where that crease line is, that's yeah. where the levator inserts and that's your tarsal plate. You have plenty of room in my eyelid to treat immediately. In an Asian eyelid, you have a very, very narrow margin of correction and a wide margin of error if it goes wrong. So if you move further out laterally, you're you're further away from the insertion point to the eyelid. That's why I like to stay laterally. I, again, I like to mitigate my risk. I don't mind. I love helping out, but I really, it needs to be calculated. <laughs> 100%. 
And so what, what, and then you obviously using your eye drops. So again, what do they do exactly? What's this? So these eye drops, um, it's a, it's an alpha agonist, alpha one and two agonist. And so that acts on the smooth muscle of Mueller's muscle. So Mueller's muscle itself is a smooth muscle. The pretarsal muscle acts on acetylcholine is what feeds it, innervates it and allows that. So we're blocking that like we would with any other muscle. You need the alpha one and two drops um, to lift and activate Mueller's muscle. Yeah. So my understanding is the Mueller's muscle basically sits under the muscle that you might have accidentally paralyzed. And so the eye drops to create a bit of artificial contraction to get just a a millimeter or two extra lift just to get you over that period where Levator is not doing its job. Um, So it's actually quite simple when you break it down to that. But when you look at the anatomy, it can be confusing. David, could you treat me tomorrow? No guarantee on results, though. Then you will be signing this consent form. (laughs) (laughs) And answering my questionnaire afterwards. Only if you pass the test. Exactly. Um, Because it's interesting, you know, some uh, ocular plastic uh, surgeons or um, eye doctors, they'll happily put five units in an eyelid for blepharospasm and they're fine. They they don't have an issue. The spasm stops, they don't get ptosis, and everyone's happy. But I guess that is a risk. They would obviously have to counsel their patient that they could get ptosis because of that. Yeah. But I mean, presumably ocular plastics, they know their anatomy very well. Yeah. So hopefully they're not, right? True. So what are the complications of the treatment? That That's something that we should discuss. Yeah. There might be injectors going, oh, wow, I'm going to go and try this tomorrow. But what are the complications <laughs> of, of doing this pretarsal toxin plus or minus um, eye drops? So if you're injecting in the upper lid, ectropion is theoretically a, a risk, but upper lid, I haven't seen it. I think it's incredibly rare. Um, if you're going to inject that in the lower lid, ectropion is a very, uh, it's very risky for that. It likely will occur at this dosing if you're doing six units. Some ptosis cases, I'll inject six units for correction into the ciliary line, only the upper lid. Um, so I think it's important that we let everyone out there know I'm referring to just the upper lid um, when I'm talking about injecting around the ciliary line. The most common side effect is dry eye because they can't blink their eye and close it completely at night, especially if you're using six units. If you're using two units along the ciliary line, like I did with Whitney, she could close it, but it didn't feel like she could seal it shut. So um, eye drops throughout the day is what I would recommend. Okay. And I guess the risk is, uh, I mean, with the eye drops, at least you could get blurry vision. You can get this um, phenomenon. We were talking about this on our Patreon chat the other day with one of our patrons um she tried your technique and you know it it kind of worked but then the patient actually couldn't close the eye at all um so she sort of i think it's called lag lag and thalmos yeah Yeah. so you know don't overcook it i guess is is what you're saying just try your one unit and then maybe two so one medial one lateral um but if you're not confident please please just a disclaimer don't try these things send them to someone (laughs) like me or um happy to try but uh yeah, you kind of want to know what you're doing because, you know, you don't want to make it worse, of course. You know, our patients at the end of the day are the ones that are suffering and these things are quite, uh, mm. just, just, yeah, it can yeah. make you quite distraught if you can't close your eye. So I don't yeah. have to assume that you guys aren't going to use the six-month toxins that are coming out to treat uh, this area of the face. That's a good question, actually. <laughs> I mean, what, what would your tolerance be having seen all of these ptosis? Would you potentially use a toxin that lasts longer? I'm not, that doesn't concern me as much. Um, 
what does is I just haven't seen it last that long. And that's kind of what I, I want to make sure if I'm telling my patients, this is the duration and I'm charging them accordingly. I'd like, I want to make sure that that's the result. So it just came out in the U.S. market. We might be reconstituting it incorrectly or not, you know, so it's fully potent. We may not be injecting enough units at each injection point. So I'm kind of waiting to see a little bit um, and talk to some of my colleagues who have used it longer before I bring it on. Yeah. Interesting. Got a few business questions. Some of them you've already answered. So we understand, I was going to ask you how you manage this from a business perspective. We've... uh... We've learned that you treat these people for free, which is uh, very nice of you. It's very. Uh, Please don't, I'll send it. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get like 300,000 patients on your <laughs> Um, How have you trained your staff to manage these sort of situations when patients call up? Because, you know, it's all very well and good that you know exactly what to do and you've crossed this and make the patients feel calm and explain the process to them. But how, how, have, you, how have you managed your, your people that are first point of contact to deal with these? situations yeah our front desk i think it's incredibly important to train your front desk Mm. um so every bruise if a patient calls and they think they have a bruise or a certain area is still numb and they're concerned i want to photograph and we give a phone call Mm -hmm. um it's really important that when we leave at the end of the day any patient call concern has not gone unanswered and responded to and and deemed safe to not see in clinic Generally speaking, um, if if the patient is maybe a bit more concerned or hysterical, I just have them come in, even if I think it's fine, um, just so I can alleviate their concern. Because otherwise, I'm going to hear from them. They're either going to DM me anyhow. Yeah. Um, they'll become more anxious and convinced because they, they go down the Google rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I train staff. I, everyone, if a patient's concerned, anything with bruising, numbness or blanching white spots or rash uh i want to know immediately yeah okay um did you change any of your processes after seeing this case so from your own perspective we sort of touched on this a little bit with consent forms and patient selection but was this sort of a a moment in time where you sort of took that opportunity to change how you do things absolutely i will say i did not always mention blepharitosis when consenting a patient but I've had a couple of patients come and they said, I never knew this could even happen. And to me, we all know this could happen, right? But this is the world that we live in. So it's obvious to us. It's not obvious to our patients. Yeah. Um, so now I make it a point to let every single patient know that this could occur. Yeah. Um, and you show them so photos I, what, that, what that actually, what the reality of what that means? Because there's one, one thing to say a word, but what does it actually mean in terms of... Yeah. You know, I haven't gone that far. Some of them do come to me because they know I've already managed it. So they have already seen it themselves. Yeah. Um, or they'll say, oh, yeah, that one girl. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you think about um, creating a video of you talking about things and, you know, throwing in a few uh, images rather than just giving them a piece of paper or an iPad? Do you think that would I make think it that's brilliant? Yeah, I think if you have the patients a little QR code, either you know that's sent to them in their their consent forms. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I just are on their way out. Yeah, and, you know, often for our patients, it's just sort of like, oh God, more stuff to read. Blah, blah, blah. You, yeah. you know that they know that they're supposed to read it. You know they're supposed to read it. You can do the quiz, but 
at the end of the day, sometimes, I don't know, I was just thinking maybe a video. Well, Rick, spoke, Rick spoke about this in one of the digital deep dive um, conversations that we had with him. And we were talking about the utility and the, and the potential benefits of having videos that automatically go to a patient when mm. they book, when they leave, you know, hi, I'm Brit. I did your treatment today. This is what you're going to experience afterwards. These are the do's. These are the don'ts. If you have any questions, please get in touch. As Yeah, because people just, I mean, oh God, I, so many emails that you get, you just sort of glaze over and hit delete because yes. you're inundated with just so much garbage. So yes. I don't know if you can find an opportunity to make it interactive and it's personal. It's not just from a medical legal perspective. It's also just doing Branding. something different. Yeah. And just connecting. It feels more personal than just an email. So something. I really like the idea of a a questionnaire, though. That would be fun. Five questions, like here are the risks and complications, and if you answer these all correctly, you get like skin some skincare or something. Make it fun for the patient and like dangle an incentive, a reward for it. And if you're a dummy, you can get your deposit back and go home. (laughs) We call it the the we'll call it the uh, the natural selection quiz, Britt. What do you think? (laughs) That's right. Oh gosh, that'd be scary. That's hilarious. Well, Brett, it's been awesome to catch up. I'm glad we finally did this. We've been speaking about Thank it for you. a long time. Um, was it as much fun Thank as you thought it would be? I love this. I loved it. Actually, um, I forget who I was listening to. You guys were like, or your um, who you were interviewing, you guys were all cocktailing. I'm like, what a fun podcast. How amazing <laughs> yeah. that you're like having drinks in different continents and talking yeah. about where am I Negroni? We'll have one tonight at seven because Jake's back here. We've got oh, yeah. another one later tonight. Yeah, that's it's true. Oh, okay. Double Jake, double Jake day. That's good. <laughs> that's perfect. We're actually going after, right after this. We have uh, it's my David's um, 40th yeah. birthday, so we're going to nice. we have a tasting menu um, by this chef that we love, our favorite restaurant. So perfect. we're all have there. Make sure you get a Negroni and send us a selfie to prove that you did it. Is Brit is Brit Patreon group yet? She's not yet. We're oh, good. I'm trying to encourage her to come along. I'm not even on oh, Patreon anymore. Oh, have to. We'll We've be. got a crazy community. It's a great fun. Yeah. Well, actually, just to dangle, we're going to capture a little bit of bonus content with Brit straight yes. after this, and we will put it on our Patreon. So you must join and check so it out. So what are we going to ask? Let's let's sort of tell people what we're going to be asking. We're going to be getting... Well, okay. Yeah. Well, let, well, firstly, let's uh, announce again that Brit has just built her new clinic, and it's kind of pretty functional now, I guess. You, you moved in, and, and it's up and running. It's up and running. I'll show you downstairs, which is still being, it's a work in progress. Yes. But yeah, it's, right, I, it's we'll, great. We'll so do a walkthrough video and throw it up so okay. people can see what it looks like. Yeah. We'll also maybe get your top <clears throat> five or 10 hints of what would you do if you could rebuild your clinic and know all the problems that were going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> top tips for success, maybe some bloopers or mistakes that you've made so we can all learn, yes. learn from each other. So yeah, if you'd like to uh, get access to that content, Head across to our Patreon. Come, come aboard. Get pu- become part of the team, the IA Global community. Yeah, and let's learn together. And actually, what would be really cool, Britt, will take you ten seconds if you could like do a little selfie video to draw on exactly on your own eyelid where oh, you, yeah. your toxin injections. If you had a ptosis, we'll put that up as well. Yes, excellent. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Britt. It's been lovely speaking, and we'll catch up soon. Thank you. Okay, sounds good. Bye, 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 You have to come visit. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I I heard there's also an amazing conference out there. Yeah, 823. Yeah, there's a couple. There's a couple coming this year still. Yeah, so come down. We will. Take care. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. 
If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information. 